So I have a bunch of different. You're loaded up. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm gonna grab a fakie and uh, another cookie before we get started here. Nice. I assume me gaslighting Sean is our cold open. (laughs) (laughs) No, that is. Yeah. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, romantic shelter builder and earth guardian. Roman? Oh, okay. I know where that came from. It came from our special trip together. It came from the universe, Jeremy. I mean the universe. Yeah. You guys did just have a special trip together. I'm jealous. Yeah, we met in a, a cabin in Pennsylvania. The halfway point. The halfway point. Between Kalamazoo and Philadelphia, right? Yeah, and then we pretended it was Christmas again. Oh yeah, it was between Christmas and New Year's, which of course, this will be weeks out from that <laughs> once this airs, but I, I, it was, it was, I'm so glad that you guys got to hang out. True, Sean got me some nice dollar bin records for christmas it was very sweet yeah and uh three of them he didn't own bonus yeah 60 <laughs> percent, not bad yeah well after that very long intro where i didn't actually explain sean's name at all <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm that's fine i'm co-host jeremy and i have been inspired by co-host Sean's books he's written over the past year. So in this new year, I decided to take a crack with my new book, Hamilton Lovers and Hamilton Haters, a guide to why Dirk's music is good and the musical is bad. Oh, wow. So you're you're heavily advocating for a very obscure artist while trashing on a very popular musical. Yes, it's... It's my brand. I was going to say, it sounds like a Jeremy Ruggles book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a future classic, which side are you on? You know, like we've moved past the need of, are you a Rolling Stones or a Beatles guy? It's all about, do you prefer the music of Dirk Hamilton or the musical Hamilton? <laughs> There's only two kinds of people out there. After this episode, that is where we will be as a society. Oh, man. And I'll just say, I am co-host Peter. And I decided to forego trying to come up with anything clever, witty, funny to say in my intro here. And instead, I just want to say that I realized while listening to this Dirk Hamilton album that we're here to talk about today that I have been missing something for the past year or two in my music listening experience because the artist Van Morrison, who I really love musically, has said enough stupid things and revealed himself to be a miserable enough human that I just don't listen to his music anymore. And then here I am listening to this Dirk Hamilton album and it's everything I needed. It's an alternative to Van Morrison. True. You can listen to Dirk singing on the left or Van's barking from the right. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, well, that is the truth. We are talking Dirk Hamilton. You can sing on the left or bark on the right. And I am going to give you an inaccurate view of this album today because <laughs> I have picked almost all just the slower, folkier songs, despite the fact that they represent less than half the album. That's, that, that sounds, once again, like a Jeremy Ruggles episode. <laughs> yes, I'm fully on brand this week. <laughs> what year is this from? This is from 1976. Okay, yeah, I was thinking it was mid-70s. Yeah, yeah. and it is Dirk's first album, but we'll get into more of that later. I want to start with Little Big Time Man, Side A, Track 3. Caught between a window and a screen You talk like a two-line actor Trying to steal the scene And when you run out of lines You're hoping that a phone will ring I'm telling you the truth I'm not trying to be mean You're always talking never listen A big name walks in and you're a lap dog licking Some are over and some are under but no one is beside you You can always impress the impressible ones you're at There's lots all around you see in your suit and think that it's a cat's pajamas Talking to blue flame, basking in near fame Clown the tinsel town Silly little man Little big time man Some are over And some are under But no one is beside you I'm not usually the guy to focus on the lyrics of an album but that one had one of my favorite lines on the album that stood out to me you talk like a two-line actor trying to steal the scene which is just like such a clever piece of imagery and the like cleverness and the the type of imagery that he uses definitely gives me a lot of like classic country vibes too yeah there's an efficiency to some of his lines where he says like so like you said with that line that's like a handful of words but it builds like a whole image immediately Mm -hmm. yeah you know listening to that song i hadn't thought of this comparison yet but some of the lyrics his delivery there, I'm getting some impressions of a later artist who would have come in the 80s, 90s, who I know you're a big fan of, Jeremy, Vic Chestnut. True. He's got a little of that twang. Yeah. 
Yeah, I found listening to this, there's like a handful of voices. It's like our human nature of wanting to like categorize it where it's like kind of sounds like Van Morrison, kind of like Bob Dylan maybe, a little like Springsteen. There's some of that southern twang reminded me of a an artist I listen to called Citizen Cope, but it just floats between all of them without like you can't I don't know, you can't connect any of them necessarily. Yeah, I guess they're all very much Dirk Hamilton at the yeah. end at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. Which he has a pretty wild voice. I was playing this album for a friend of mine and he was like, Wow, that voice. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, it's like the advanced Bob Dylan class. Like once you've gotten used to Dylan, this is for uh yeah, taking it to the next level. Well, and all those artists you mentioned in comparison, you could say probably the common thread is they all are have like deep roots in the kind of folk and country and like the roots rock tradition. Americana. Americana, all of that stuff. And, you know, those genres, especially folk and stuff, have uh, historically been full of very unique voices. You know, it's not the kind of thing that's typically like, oh, this per- person can sing perfectly. That's why they made it in the folk world. You know, it's a whole different vibe. So it fits right in in that context. Yeah, and he kind of came, like was mentioned earlier, this is 76 and his first album and it was during this period where there were just a ton of like singer songwriters kind of coming into the mainstream. And they, uh, we'll get into it later, but they polished this album and added a ton of crazy famous players backing him up and seemed to think that he might be like the next big thing in the singer songwriter realm because he's. He sticks out, I would say, lyrically and with his voice. And but I think he sticks out a little too much, maybe. <laughs> they might have overestimated yeah. his appeal. Yeah, that that's interesting. I'm sure we'll get into the the actual lineup and everything later on, but when I was just listening to the record for the first time, I almost got the impression that it was like a home recorded kind of thing. And then when I actually looked at the the full lineup, I was like, holy shit, there was some like real money behind this with the guys that they got as the backing players on it. It's kind of shocking the names that are on this. Yeah, I wasn't expecting those. I just happened to shortly before I came to record, I, I looked and it was like, oh, that's uh yeah, this I kind of had the same impression as you, Sean, without looking too much into it. I thought it was a lower budget deal. <laughs> you guys have teased too much. I'm just gonna I'm going to go over the names on this album. We're going to do this. No, no. Save it till the end. Save it? Yeah. All right. Sean wants to save it. We'll leave it a mystery. Well, should we start with who Dirk was? Or do you get, did you guys have any previous experience of Dirk? I can't say that I did. You've brought him up for a while. I think you've been considering covering him for some time on this show. Yeah, this is one. I got two of his albums hanging out in Sean's garage back when he lived in Michigan a few years back. And just the cover kind of said Jeremy album. (laughs) So we put it on and I was like, whoa, this guy rips and I've never heard of him. I don't think many people have heard of him. Have you, I guess if, if he was in your garage, you had heard of him before Jeremy, huh, Sean? 
Uh, not really. <laughs> Are you saying that when you're pricing records, you don't listen to them multiple times front to back? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure I probably bought that with like a whole box of other records and then tried to price them all as quickly as possible and keep moving kind of thing. So this is, this was one that went into the stacks and I paid money for it at some point, but I don't think I ever played it. But I've been really enjoying this record. It was a, a very solid Jeremy pick. Cool, cool. Well, let's give a little background on Dirk. Dirk Hamilton was born in Hobart, Indiana, August 31st, 1949. That is about two hours from where Peter and I stand right now by automobile, kind of near Gary, Indiana, home of Michael Jackson. Yeah. Freddie Gibbs. And Freddie Gibbs. I was wondering (laughs) what she might say. (laughs) He actually grew up in California primarily, though. He started singing and playing guitar around age eight and was playing in local garage outfits in his very early teens. He, at age 14 was playing in kind of a surf rock band, early rock and roll, called The Regents, and that's where he wrote his first song. He wrote two more songs at age 15 that were released on 45 with that band as well. So he was writing songs very early on. He mentioned in an interview that He started writing songs, but before any of that, even as a kid, he was writing poems and stories, and the first time he heard Bob Dylan was when he kind of put it all together and was like, oh, songs don't have to be silly, empty pop lines. They can be stories onto themselves. So, as you might imagine, this is heavily Bob Dylan influenced, at least early on. Yeah, I might have guessed that. Yeah. Dirk was playing solo out in the Central Valley region and near San Francisco in California. And he gets heard by, he described him as a busyness lawyer. Busyness. Yeah, he describes this frame of his career this like early frame as his busy time with music and seems to look back on it not terribly positively he makes it seem like it was a lot of work that didn't have a lot to do with the music itself is kind of the impression I got reading some interviews with him well I got news for Dirk you know as the wizened much younger man than him that I am that's part of the game Yeah, (laughs) it is. And he played the game for a bit. This lawyer saw one of his shows and was like, hey, we got to get you signed. And he moves down to L.A. and the lawyer starts putting him in front of the right kinds of people. One of those people he put him in front of was Steely Dan producer Gary Katz. Yeah, saw that name as the producer. Yeah, and he... He just played a few songs for Gary, and Gary was like, okay, we got to do an album. Like, you're really good at this. So Gary starts taking him around to labels, 
and ABC Records was like, yeah, we'll, we'll sign you. So they sign him. Gary Katz produces his first album, which is the album we are listening to today. If you are unfamiliar with Gary Katz, other than producing Steely Dan's Can't Buy a Thrill and Gaucho, he also produced Diana Ross, 10CC, Laura Nero, and had a long career as a, an A&R person where he signed Prince, Dire Straits, Shaka Khan, Jimmy Buffett. So pretty big name in the industry. Yeah, when I saw his name in the credits, I just thought that's a name I feel like I've heard thrown around as a major player, you know, probably in the yeah, the 70s. Yeah. And yeah, with everything you just named, I would say yes, he was. Yeah, 70s and into the 80s, he was a uh, big man on campus. So let's play another song, give people another taste. Here is I Got to Feelin', Side A, Track 5. I tipped the tea tray in her waiting room When I saw her sitting at the loom I backed out slower with a nervous smile I bet that slow, I bet that slow, I bet that slow, bet that slow That I don't got a feeling That I don't got a feeling That I don't got a feeling I got a feeling that the race track's so slow my horse can I go? Rest that so slow. The door was locked, I can't get out of here. The key was dangling from the chandelier. Across the carpet to the spiral stair. I walk on up, I toot on up, I tweet on up, fought on up, and I ain't got a feeling, and I ain't got a feeling, I ain't got a feeling, I got a feeling in her It all came clear While gazing darkly through a glass of beer That a man must step back down and face his fear It happens less in these more folkier tracks I picked But throughout this album there's some like shifty rhythm stuff going on and you could hear it in that track a little bit and it's even more extreme in some of the other tracks where it starts to kind of like cascade a little bit 
Yeah, and like there's there's parts where there's time changes and like some like kind of feel changes that I think that combined with I think his lyrics are brilliant, but I think he doesn't craft like pop hooks necessarily. And that was kind of a recipe for this not being a a good selling album, but conversely was highly critically acclaimed. Yeah, it's not something that you can kind of just tune out. You kind of have to stick with it as far you have to be engaged with it, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, it's not background music at all and kind of won't let itself be. Yeah, it definitely kind of it plays like a folk record in that sense where it's not made for the hooks, like you said. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm a folk guy. I'm for that. Well, should we talk uh, the players on this thing now? Yeah, I don't think we have to wait till the last second of the episode to do that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now we say our goodbyes, then we say the lineup, then we play the last song. (laughs) Ay, ay, ay. No. So, Gary Katz, mega industry man, brings in some heavy, heavy hitters on this album. One of the more ridiculous lineups of players we've had on any album on this well, podcast, I think. And especially such an unknown name. <laughs> yeah, his first album. He was just kind of playing like coffee houses and like wine bars or whatever on the coast. And just like, yeah, went from that right into having, we'll start with Chuck Rainey on the bass. Who we just discussed on the Mary McCreary episode. Yeah. And is one of the most recorded bassists ever. And has played with pretty much everyone. I wrote down Aretha Franklin, Quincy Jones, and Roberta Flack. But <laughs> that's just the beginning of a long list. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Yeah, and s- similar to like Bernard Purdy, the actual public list is probably a small fraction of the things that he actually played on. <laughs> There's probably a lot of stuff that's like kind of a secret that <laughs> you can't even supposed to know that he's the one that did it. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I think that Chuck has been on a couple of albums that we've recorded <laughs> us as musicians. <laughs> yeah, we're not supposed to talk about that, oh, Peter. Oh, that's right. Cut that out. <laughs> And if that wasn't enough, he also has David Hungate playing bass, who was a bass player with Toto, and has also played with Dolly Parton, Chet Atkins, his own list of stars. On drums, you got Jeff Porcaro. From Toto. From Toto, who also played on Michael Jackson's Thriller album. Played with Sonny and Cher on keyboards. Another guy we've mentioned in a few episodes, David Page, son of Marty Page, who was also, David was in Toto. Played with Boss Gags, played with Donna Summer, played with a million people. On the guitar, good lord, the guitarists on this are so ridiculous <laughs> and there's almost no flashy guitar playing i would say on top of it there's like very little flashy playing of any kind on here yeah <laughs> yeah the acoustic guitar was dirk hamilton himself but in addition to that you have larry carlton 
mentioned a few times on the pod before. He played with the Crusaders, yeah. Joni Mitchell, Michael Franks, who we previously featured, one billion other people. Lots of Steely Dan. Lots of Steely Dan. A lot of these people have worked with Steely Dan, unsurprisingly. <laughs> yeah, given who's heading up the project. Yeah. Including another guitar player on here, Dean Parks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Dean's uh, getting up there as far as featured players on I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Yeah. He's been on a lot of records we've talked about. Yeah, including the Crusaders. He's on the Kenny Loggins album we talked about. He's been on Steely Dan albums. Yep, Jody Watley. Jody Watley. Also have Elliot Randall on guitar. Also played with Steely Dan. Also played with I'd Buy That alum Richie Havens on a few different records. Played with Loudon Wainwright III, who has some really good tunes. Mm-hmm. And finally on guitar, Louis Shelton, who has only played with some minor figures like Lionel Richie, Boss Gags, Whitney Houston. <laughs> <laughs> so it was more of a part-time thing for him is what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, then on accordion, you have Ron Franson, who played with Rare Earth. And other than that, I couldn't find too many other credits. Because he's, he's an accordion player. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't mean that as a disc, just that's, you know, not in demand as those other instruments. Fair. It looks like he's on multiple Dirk Hamilton records, though, so I wonder if they were just friends. Yeah, that was my suspicion, given that Everyone else on this album was like mega industry people. Yeah. I do like that his nickname is The Wizard. Yeah. The Accordion Wizard. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to keep it exciting. And in uh, the hopes of not just listing names for the next 45 minutes, I'm just going to say the background vocalists. Chris Hillman. Jim Gilstrap, Shirley Matthews, Tom Kelly, Vanetta Fields, and Sweethearts of the Rodeo, all giving some background vocals to this thing. Well, Chris Hillman is from The Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers, and you know, The Birds had the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album. So there's, yeah, we could unpack a lot there, but like you said, for the sake of not going on and on, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yeah, so... They backed this album up big time, and it did not sell super well. And you can kind of see a a pullback by his next album, which came out in 77, Alias I. Still has some pretty big names on it, but they pulled some of the the biggest names out, it appears. And uh, I... Honestly, think I like that album more. Well, but I picked this one because I thought it might be more accessible. It almost seems like they threw too much money at this one. Like I feel like this album could be just as good without having that much. Mega- yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like the songs already kind of stand on their own. You don't need like a billion players backing it up. Yeah, it seems a little overzealous, but hey, it happens. Yeah, it's some. Some flawless, uh, simple backing there, so. Yeah. But, yeah, as I said, 
I have a second album, Alias I, as well, that I picked up from Sean at the same time. I think I prefer that one personally. It's got more mellow songs on it. Some of the imagery is a little like grittier and darker, which is my jam, but I thought this album might be more accessible as an introduction to Dirk, who is already kind of challenging between his very dense lyricism and vocal style. Yeah, I feel like with any vocalist whose voice is beyond unique, you know, an acquired taste, it, it it's going to probably make it or break it for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it seems for you, it's just part of the charm. True. I think, yeah, it's personally, like, even, like, I like his vocals, but other artists who I just, like, don't really like their vocals, if I just keep listening, I kind of get over it and can hear the song behind it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll never forget the first time that I bought and put on a Neil Young album, the first like 30 seconds, I was like, how can anyone take this seriously? I will will never be able to hear past this. And then I suddenly noticed that the song was really good and I never heard it as distracting again. So what age was this? Like 11 or 30 or 17. Okay. Right in the middle. Yep. I bought after the gold rush. And, uh, yeah, I started hearing that high voice of his <laughs> and it was, yeah, shocking. Yeah. I, I agree though. I feel like vocals can be one of the easiest things to get over a like negative initial impression for me. It's like, it can be very off putting the first time and then if a few listens and you just get used to it and it's like, okay, that's what this is supposed to sound like, you know? Uh, and speaking of comparisons with other singers another guy that i was hearing a little bit was rick danko from the band Mm -hmm. in fact i feel like some of the songs on this album could have just been like lost tracks from the bob dylan and the band basement tapes i could see that i don't know if dirk would be happy with the i hope he would be happy (laughs) but who knows yeah so alias i is his second album in 77 and then the label he's on, ABC Records, gets bought by MCA. And somehow in the aftermath, he ends up not on the label and gets signed to Elektra Records for his next two albums. So he's still on major labels. Yeah. Yep. He put out a total of four albums on major labels. The third one he put out, Meet Me at the Crux, I think is, from what I could gather online, for the true Dirkheads, that's like the one. And I'd seen like, a, I want to say it was a Rolling Stone journalist describe it as a minor masterpiece and one of the best of the singer-songwriter albums from the 70s. Well, I, I like this album enough to be intrigued to go check that out. I mean, that's... Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's the the slow songs on that album are probably my favorite of Dirk's songs, like Top of the Pops. He has some of the funky rock soul different things going on and some of the other songs that for me personally I'm not super into, but 
Yeah. Super good album. And his fourth album is really good as well. Thug of Love. Yeah. I, I thought about using that for a title before I set, decided to just go the route of saying he's a great alternative to Van Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one came out in 1980. It has some boxer on the cover. He was really into boxing. He liked it ideologically. He thought it was very pure, like just dudes throwing fisty cuffs. And he uh, he said in one interview that he had like a lot of empathy for the loser of a boxing match, which uh, I don't know. It feels like a metaphor for something, but I'm not sure what exactly. Yeah, yeah this, this is definitely giving insight to Dirk, but I don't know what it says. Yeah. Also, I'm looking at the lineup on that Thug of Love album, and you got Garth Hudson on accordion and synthesizer. <gasps> from the band. From the band. <laughs> so I'm thinking that Dirk would probably appreciate the Rick Danko comparison. All right. You are uh, absolved <laughs> or <Okay>. something. <laughs> yeah. So that was the end of his major label career, though, in 1980. He seemed to not enjoy being on major labels. He didn't seem to like being in the spotlight, and he stopped. He just didn't do another album on a major and didn't put out another studio album for 10 years. Oh, wow. That takes us into the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, so let me play another song, and then we'll pick up... uh, Dirk from the end of the major label career into the present. So for the next song, I'll play When She Kiss You Like She Love, parentheses, You Know She Do. Side B, track four. Out of place, filling up the room to every crack in the place, every crack in the place, every song you'd wanna hear. And when she kisses you like she loves you, she kisses you like she loves you. When she kisses you like she loves you, know she do. And lovers with their arms all wrapped around their grief, they promise with their bodies what their hearts can't keep. Dream inside your sleep.
chains like diamonds trying to shine like stars It can protect you from the fear I don't know what, if any, songs from this were released as singles, but I feel like that one probably has the most potential to have possibly caught on on radio, you know, in this time that this was released, mid-70s. That one has, that chorus is a little hooky. A little bit. Not a lot of bit, though. Yeah. No, I mean, it's still pretty subdued. Yeah, and it's like... His voice, like, isn't for the AM gold, like, soft rock world. Well, no, so that's, yeah, once again, I feel like that's the one thing probably holding this and the whole album back from from catching on is it's just still there's something going on in his delivery that's just unique. Yeah. And (laughs) lyrically, it's, it's not, you know, the lowest common denominator that a lot of the AM gold stuff was. Yeah, it's, it's too heady for them. It's too heady. <laughs> Personally, when I read the title of that song before the first time I listened to it, just like the grammatical choices in it kind of felt like a red flag. Like, I don't think I'm going to like this song. And I was like pretty surprised at how tender and pretty the song actually was. That is actually what I meant to say. <laughs> and yeah, like when Jeremy <laughs> even read this, the title off, Right before we listened to it, I was like, oh, that just is almost cringy. Yeah, I, hate, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I hated having to say the title. I'm not going to lie. And the, yeah, and then it really works. He's saying it, and it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm with him. I'm, I'm, I'm in the song. Beautiful song. Well, let's pick up the thread, take it to the end here. Uh, real quick, though, ABC never released a single for Dirk Hamilton. Electra tried to put out a few for him, but ABC never bothered. Oh, interesting. Which, yeah, yeah. that alone is uh, part of the issue with this not catching on at all. They didn't even try. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's not just blame Dirk for not writing a hook here. Like, the label could have at least dropped a single. Come on, guys. Yeah, especially after putting that roster behind it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you spent the money in for a penny, in for a pound. I, Come on, advertise it. I think there's a little mismanagement going on here. No, not in the music business. <laughs> not in the 70s. It's a tightly run ship. Flawless. Well, that tightly run ship is why Dirk left the music industry. He took a year off initially where he was guarding a sugar factory and drinking at a bar that was below a boxing gym, which feels like its own metaphor somehow. Yeah, the the imagery is like straight out of a singer-songwriter song. Yeah. Then he spent a few years after that working with troubled teens in a counseling-type role, and... And then he basically became Dog the Bounty Hunter. Is that what you're saying? Then he became Dog the Bounty. No. Yeah. (laughs) He had a great career in reality television. (laughs) No. He he did say when he first like left, he didn't even want to listen to music, let alone play it or write new songs. But sometime in the mid eighties, a friend of his got him to start playing in a cover band with him. 
And then he started writing new songs again, and he kind of had this awakening like, oh, yeah, I am supposed to be making music on this earth. And so he starts writing songs. He goes super DIY where he's just recording. He recorded and self-released like a cassette tape in the mid-'80s, which somehow found its way to an Italian record label where for reasons that I couldn't discern, he's popular in Italy, which... Interesting. Yeah, even reading in an interview with him, he didn't even understand it. He was like, I started going to Italy, and he started playing there like almost every year touring over in Italy, and he even said, like, they don't... A lot of them don't speak English. (laughs) Like, uh, so he's not... He doesn't really understand it, but he just doesn't question it. And an Italian record label, Appalosa, put out a few of his albums starting in 1990 and into the mid-90s. And he starts putting out records with other Italian labels. He put out a record with a label out of Nashville called Core. And he was also self-releasing albums. From 1990 through 2016, it appears as the last album I saw he's put out. That was called Touch and Go, and he's still out playing shows. He's been doing a lot of streaming shows since COVID started, but he he's still playing out a bit. I watched a live show he did, and he... I th- think he sings better now than when this album came out (laughs) he's like a better singer the songs he did were still like great songs like he's still writing great songs i honestly didn't get a chance to check out his albums that have come out since 1990 i'm familiar with you know his four major label records but not terribly familiar with more of his recent output but yeah from watching the show his songs are still really good it's funny that he seems to have that second career that sort of began as a DIY or outsider musician <laughs> might get discovered and, you know, self-releasing and picked up by a label from another part of the world. And But yet he almost seems like a musician that that would be the better trajectory all along, just doing yeah. doing things on his own at his own pace. Yeah. So well, I'm glad he didn't let his experiences with the majors deter him for life. Yeah, and he's put out a ton of material, and I'm pretty sure all of it's really good. Cool. So that's where we leave Dirk. He's still out there kicking. Sean? Jamie? This is the moment where you bring us some recommended similar albums. Some recommended similar albums, you say. Yes, I have those. And I think I think uh, these first two have been recommended before, so you know they're good. First up, John David Souther, Black Rose, also from 1976. Excellent album, showcases a little more of the country influence that you hear a bit of on this record, but uh, J.D. Souther leaned a little more country. But uh, some good comparisons. I picked that up when I was in Philadelphia visiting you, Sean. Did you like it? 
I can't remember if I've listened to it yet. I, I right. picked up to like be determined. I picked up thirty <laughs> albums while I was there. If I if I did listen to it, it's only once. And uh, yeah, yeah, you can't be blamed for not fully digesting that whole stack yet. <laughs> but I will get to it because I, I, I imagine sooner or later we're going to feature that one. Yeah, definitely. Next up is a real obscure 1976 record by a guy named Charlie Bleak, but I think it has kind of a similar energy to this one where it's like a little more of an almost home recorded kind of feel, really unique approach and just great take on uh, Americana roots rock kind of thing. Uh, it's really cheap. Seems like a pretty much unknown record and we'll feature that one at some point. And last up for a record that we've featured before on the podcast, the one that I kept thinking of, and partly because of the comparison in sound, but also just the idea of kind of the working man's musician, someone that's been doing it for a long time and stayed consistently very good. So that comparison is Nils Lofgren, One Plus One from 1972, Ooh. previously featured. Grin. That's a great album. Did I, did I pronounce it wrong? No, no, no. The al- oh, his- the Grin, the album. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> the, <laughs> his name is Nils Lofgren. The band is Grin. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you as always, Sean Dad. Well, you're welcome as always. And thank you, listeners. As a reminder, you can always check us out on social media. On Instagram, we're at I'd Buy That Podcast. On Facebook, just search I'd Buy That for a Dollar will come up. Of course, you can also join the Facebook group, the I'd Buy That for a Dollar group, where us and other listeners will post cool finds, cheap finds, share in the community. Join us. Any final thoughts from the panel here on our featured artist here today? Uh, my final thought is that this last track we're going to feature is probably my favorite one on the album and sounds even more like Bob Dylan than the other ones we've heard. That's valid. Yeah. Yeah. The last track I picked was, wasn't that one night good? I will, I will finally mention as, um, previously said a little bit, most of the rest of this record does not sound like this along with most of his material. I would say greater than 50% of it is a little more rocking, a little more maybe soul at times, a little bluesy at times. He kind of goes in different directions based on the song. So if you don't like these mellow ones I'm picking, try some of the other tunes, but I'm not going to feature any of them. I'm only doing the songs I like. Jeremy's approach is vastly different from mine where I sometimes will forego playing a song that I like to give a better balance of the album, but I got to admire you just sticking to your guns, Jeremy. Yeah. I feel like if this appeals to you, well, I just assume you're like me and you probably like <laughs> the mellow songs that feature the words a little more. How could it be any other way? It wouldn't even make sense I to not be Jeremy Ruggles. I can't imagine that anyone else is different from me. Is that a thing? That's uh, isn't that like solipsism or something? <laughs> it's just Jeremy's all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so yeah, once again, the the last song that we're playing is called what? It is called "Wasn't That One Night Good?" Side B, track two. 
And I will also throw out there, Peter mentioned this briefly in the middle of a song. Oh, yeah. This is worth mentioning to our listeners. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of the releases online, if you go to whatever your online streaming thing is, are deluxe editions with all these unreleased tracks. And like I believe the last one for this album is called Pavlova's Shoes which is like this 10-minute epic that's really great. Yeah, I was like blown away by this, and I then Jeremy tells me it's not even on the proper album. Yeah, it's not on the actual vinyl album, so there's a ton more recorded jams from this era on these albums online if you seek them out but so th- it seems like if you if you dig the dirk there's a lot to dig you can be a dirk diggler wait oh my god <laughs> he went there wow and on that note this has been i'd buy that for a dollar my name is peter cook oh you're so proud of yourself i'm co-host jeremy and i'm co-host sean And gave to her, she gave to me when she moved in and out. I gave to you, you said you need a book to read. You read the book like did a lot, and we talked about it on your bed. Was way too short for me, I had to bend my knee. And after licking salt and drinking Jose Cuervo, sucking lamb and laughing, it was time to let our tight smile slip into a kiss. Wasn't that one that good? Should've been knocked on wood. But I knew I couldn't do it. It's just something I can't do. Wasn't that one that good? Should've been knocked on wood. But I knew I couldn't do it. I was sure I saw right through it. But it's so hard to refuse it when you see a skinny chance. The merchants had their goods set up. The marketplace was busy, but the Appalachian band was singing one was out of tune. Ponytailed males drinking beer and counting money in the fog that swirled and reeled as busy by his new